Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Feminifesto podcast. In this episode, Vaishnavi and I talk to three young women in development, Apurva Mahendra, Malvika Mani and Sandra Jules. The three young women take us through what their individual experiences have been, both as young people and as women working in the development sector, along with insightful views on what their work looks like. Take a listen. All views expressed by the participants in the podcast are personal and in no way reflect or represent the organizations they work for. Hello everyone, thank you so much for um, being with us today. We'd like to invite each of you to share a few thoughts to open today's conversation. Uh, so let's just begin by setting the context. What areas do you each work in and what aspects of development have you each worked in? And anything else that you'd like to share about the work you're doing. So can we start off with Apurva? Yeah, hi everyone. So I uh, completed my master's in economics recently and my specialization was in development studies. So I had an inclination towards uh, working on gender and because my specialization is such, I got the opportunity to explore the area a lot of my time here. So I um, have worked uh, on primary surveys with sex workers and have, my thesis was on gender budgeting and I focused on the two municipal uh, bodies, Gurugram and uh, Bengaluru and uh, analyzed the uh, gender competence of Gurugram and currently I'm working on a water and uh, sanitation project in Center for Ecosystem Research and I also need to work on women empowerment and community engagement. Thank you, Apurva. That sounds like a very wide cross-section of um, areas that you're working on, and I'm really excited to hear all that you have to share through the course of this episode. Malvika, I would love to hear about what you're up to and the work that you've been doing these past couple of months. Hi, I'm Malvika, and I'm a research associate at JPAL South Asia, and I currently work at the Behavioral Economics Lab. So I am currently working on a project that explores decision-making in households, how information is transmitted and aggregated amongst couples, and how gender plays a role on these outcomes. So um, my role involves integrating behavioral economics and development economics and bring a more bottom-up approach to research and understand the nuances of decision-making in India. So I, I have a master's in economics from UCL, and I've been focusing in economics since, uh, I guess, ninth grade. I was 14. So. Thank you so much for sharing about your current projects, Malika. I'm actually really looking forward to learning more about your work at JPAL, um, particularly the uh, behavioral, behavioral economics aspect of it. Um, so, Sandra, would you like to share uh, about your work and what you're doing right now? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Sandra. I've like Apurva, I've recently completed my master's in economics from Symbiosis School of Economics and my specialization was also in development studies. Uh, as part of my course, I've had an opportunity to work on issues such as waste management, water and also gender and the informal sector, specifically waste pickers and the street vendors. And my master's dissertation was on the changing gender composition of waste collection in Pune city. And right now I'm working as an academic associate at the Institute of Rural Management, Anand. Wow, Sandra, that's very unique. And I think it's also one of the areas that's uh, particularly relevant in the contemporary spaces that 
you know, the political economic space that we're inhabiting. I'm also very excited to hear from you about your work later on. Um, I'd like to go back to Apurva. Apurva, you have done your master's dissertation on um, gender budgeting by municipal corporations in Bangalore and Gurgaon. Uh, which is a very interesting mix of cities. So can you take us uh, through how gender budgeting works? Um, what makes it effective in the way that it can um, actually translate to results? And uh, why these two cities? Okay, so first I'll uh, go through how you carry out an activity of gender budgeting. So there are different methodologies that you can uh, use for a gender budgeting activity. So initially, I planned uh, to adopt the methodology given given by Lekha Chakravarti. So she is an expert on the subject. So we basically categorized expenditure based on specifically targeted uh, expenditure to women and girls. Or then the second category is pro-women allocations. And the third is the expenditures that are not really allocated for women, but they have gender differential impact. So uh, the universities that I have picked, especially Gurula, it has a detailed budget. So I had to categorize the expenditure based on whether the line item um, had a full component allocated to women or it had a part gender component, which is essentially um, a component with gender differential impact. So then based on literature, I identified six sectors that I've been working with. So the six sectors I chose were health, education, water and sanitation, public transportation, safety, and housing. Uh, so this was done keeping in mind the reproductive role and productive role that women has to do within a, a basic patriarchal setting. So not only is she contributing to the economy, uh, but she's also the caregiver of the family. So her well-being becomes the family's well-being, her education enables her children to access education. Then similarly, the responsibility of fetching water is there is depending on the household, um, especially if you see urban poor families with uh, community gaps or food belts. Uh, then that responsibility falls on the woman. Then the more time she's spending fetching water, the lesser time she can give to other chores or to economically, you know, uh, income generating activities. And then lastly, uh, public transportation, safety, housing, especially uh, housing near her workplace or near childcare or fetch facilities enable women to seek income generating activities. So keeping all of this in mind, I chose these six sectors. Now the real problem was that since the budgets weren't detailed, it was very difficult to place the exact budget allocation towards women. So I visited the Gurugram Municipal Corporation in the hopes that I might be able to get more details. But they simply told me that there's no expenditure allocated solely to women. So if any component had any gender differential impact whatsoever, it was marked. So that resulted in highly inflated figures of the gender component budget. So in order to carry out the gender budgeting exercise, it is essential to have a detailed budget with marked allocations for every scheme that is being implemented in that uh, state or in the uh, ULB from the center, whatever funds they're getting. All of that has to be demarcated very, very efficiently. So that you can trace exactly where the money is going and whom it could benefit. And you can't just group items together and put them in the paper. Also, when we talk about gender budgeting, we often leave out transgender. We consider only women. And that is one thing that I really noticed, especially in Gurugram. And uh, for that matter, in Bengaluru, there was the gender component was very low, and transgender are almost invisible in budgets. 
So, and the need to be included in the section, and it is it is high time the dialogue starts at UNDP, especially UNDP at Google Grant. It is a hub for income generation, and so many important opportunities. And that is also the reason that I picked these two UNDP because they are the financial, the technical hub of the country, and they generate huge opens. So, if you have to include women in the sector, if you have to ensure equality for women. You need to make sure that such UNDPs have efficient allocation towards them. Wow, your dissertation sounds so extremely vast, and it encompasses so many different issues that women face on a daily basis. So, thank you so much for taking us through it and explaining how gender budgeting works. Um, it's in fact very relevant today with how um, Nirmala Sitharaman announced the new budget today, and it'd be really interesting to see how the budget that was allocated for this financial year addresses um, this, and in, in fact, also to look at how past budget allocations have taken this into account or not. So zooming out from this uh, macro dimension of gender budgeting towards behavioral dynamics at the micro level, Malvika, your work at JPAL focuses on the behavioral economics aspect of decision-making in couples. Um, can you take us, talk to us about your observations and all of this within the limits of what you're allowed to disclose to us? Okay, sure. <laughs> so. Um, I'm currently working on a project uh, that we just launched a few weeks back, uh, which is which explores the decision making of households in India. Now, uh, the nuances of decision making and the subtleties of decision making are often lost in most papers simply because we look at it from a macro perspective. We don't understand the heuristics in which these uh, individuals make certain decisions in a developing economy. Sometimes it's based on a whim, based on a bias that they have, um, uh, their perception of gender itself, their perception of the roles and the norms set out by society, the roles of the husband and the wife, and the domains in which they would focus in the household. So my role is to understand why certain decisions are made the way they, do, uh, the way they are. And also to understand whether information is aggregated amongst these couples, because I could probably tell the wife something, but I would also be certain that it might not reach the husband because whatever information I've given her might be the husband's domain and she might not be given the opportunity to actually discuss that information or share her opinion on it, simply because of how patriarchal the society is and how human, uh, I mean, individuals in this country are conditioned to think in a certain manner. So my role has been to rationalize this heuristic that each um, individual possesses and trying to understand why sometimes there is failure of information aggregation, which is what I've noticed so far. And um, it's also to understand the importance. It's also to understand how policy instruments could be spread and could be disseminated to uh, these individuals uh, because one thing that's often lost in theoretical economics due to the numerous assumptions is the distinct human behavior that varies from individual to individual. The way they perceive certain information, the way in which certain information is shared to another individual which could actually benefit not just one person in the family but everyone in the family is quite unique in this country and in, in most developing economies. 
so to understand uh, the effectiveness of a policy um, it is imperative to understand whether the policy itself reaches the individual and the whether there are any biases due to gender and trying to rationalize behavior and hope that you know, we could come to a conclusion in which we could help share this information with not just one individual with not just the wife or just the husband but with both of them so that they could make a collective decision that not only benefits their families but also helps them uh, you know uh, get out of this particular situation that they are in in which the reason why they continue to make certain uh, decisions over that was very beautifully articulated thank you malika for sharing that and also apurva uh, i i found it really interesting and really beautiful to see that the both of you talked about conditioning in different ways uh, with apurva talking about how gender is beyond the binary and you need to include uh, the transgender community in any gender budgeting initiatives and malika talking about how behavior and conditioning is actually um, manifested in so many different decisions different choices and activities that we undertake uh, without consciously even thinking it thank you so much for sharing that ladies uh, from there moving to sandra sandra you dealt with uh, the defeminization of the waste pickup profession in pune uh, so my understanding and pardon me because it's extremely limited is that waste picking is largely urban female and child centered as an activity so uh, from your understanding and and if you could also um put it in perspective for us how has the entry of men changed the occupation and its dynamic what makes pune uh, the city in which my study is based is that it's the integration of informal market into the formal management system that is in place in the city it's an organization called swatch it's a solid based handling uh, it's full form is solid based collection and handling it's a fully worker owned cooperative that is in functioning in the pune city where the members of the or the members of the organization engages in door to door waste collection of segregated waste and they have a contract with the pune municipal corporation for which uh, through which they are enabled to do this so but before coming into the increased male participation or as you put it the defeminization of the occupation we need to understand what what interest what interested these men in enter the occupation so um, as you can see waste picking has always been a very stigmatized occupation primarily because it you know these people were dealing with waste it's something that you keep aside and you know people you who engages in them you'd rather stay away from them and also there was always this tendency of seeing these people as scavengers or thieves and always think that these people are not engaged in any sort of productive work so and you know there was very little recognition for the for their contributions towards waste management that was happening in the city so one way of you know getting out of this stigma was to collectivize these people and that was possible in pune in 1993 through the efforts of pune machitramani and lakshmi narayan they uh, through their efforts a, a trade union of waste pickers was formed called the kagat kachpatra kashtagari panchayat and the primary objective of this organization was to get a recognition for the waste pickers to raise awareness that you know informal waste pickers exist in the city and also this kind of empowered the waste pickers these women in the sense that before the before their collectivization they never really recognized their work as an occupation or that they are doing any sort of work they always thought of it as an activity you know that they do so that just so they can get, make some money you know they used to go around the city rummage through the garbage get garbage get whatever 
recyclable thing that they can get and sell it in the scrap market. So when they, while they were doing it, they never really, they themselves never really recognized their contributions towards waste management. So the formation of KKPKP helped not only in, you know, getting an identity for these women as waste pickers, it also helped in getting an, um, you know, making these women realize that they are doing something worthwhile. So once KKPKP was formed in 1993, uh, people started realizing, the private party started realizing the value of, value of waste, and they started showing interest in entering, the in entering the profession. And also the authorities also kind of leaned towards it, mostly because with private party in the picture, there would be competition, and which would lead to more productivity and efficiency, which was never really possible with an informal setup in the picture. So once you know, private, started, uh, private parties started showing interest, uh, the trade union realized that if they wanted to retain the occupation of these waste pickers, it was important for them, you know, to get into some sort of a contract with the authorities, which led to the formation of SWAJ, or, you know, Solid Waste Collection and Handling. This is a fully worker-owned cooperative that has a contract with the Pune Municipal Corporation for segregated waste collection in the city. And right now, they handle around 60% of the waste collection in the city, for, and they get user fees for their services, and they're also allowed to go through their waste, collect whatever recyclables they can, and sell it in the scrap market, and they can retain the earnings that they get. So my dissertation focused, uh, in the past few years, what we saw is that there is a consistent increase in the male participation. As you yourself said, it was a pre, it was a female-centric occupation, and you know there were not really any men in the picture. But after the formation of Swatch, there was a consistent increase in male participation. So what interested me was to know why is it that these men are entering into the profession. Now, coming uh, coming to your question about how entry of men has changed the profession or, cha or has changed the dynamics of the profession, as you know, the steadiness of the income that comes from the use of fees and the defined nature of the work, you know, like you have to work from this hour to this hour, and then you have steady access to waste. These kind of factors interested these men to enter the profession. And also, to put it very bluntly, waste has become a lot more cleaner in the past 10 years in Pune primarily because of the fact that we are segregating it. So right now, we are not rummaging through garbage in search for valuables. We actually get segregated waste. Uh, the waste in Pune City is supposed to be within the city. They are supposed to segregate the waste as dry and wet waste. So whatever recyclables are there, it's always in the dry waste. So you don't really have to go through food waste or sanitary waste for that matter. You, you have, you know, as I said, it's a lot more clean. So these kind of factors interested these men in entering the profession. Now coming to how this has changed the occupation, um, while I was doing my interviews uh, or my study, I recognized two different sections of men, like or two different ways in which men were settling into the occupation. First one was through the door-to-door -door waste collection. This is a system that has that was in the picture even before the entry of men. So through the um, agreement that Swatch had with Pune Municipal Corporation, it was said that the, the corporation would give these women push cards for with which they can go around the city, collect segregated waste from households and offices. So these men also, when they entered into the profession, they got push cards from the offices and they started doing the work just the way these men women were doing it. However, the interesting part or the second set is the interesting part. So these men, instead of using push cards like the women were you women were doing for the past many years, they introduced motorized transport or, you know, they got tempos and they started collecting waste using that. So, uh, you know, 
the difference between the two is that door to door waste collection is a completely systematic setup where you know you have uh, it's a completely systematic setup while while tempo walas are more of an entrepreneurial effort you know they collect the, they accumulate the money that they need to buy the tempo they recognize society, newer societies even before the municipal systems can find them and by worship the fact that they have motorized transport they get they have more space and they can collect more garbage more waste with which their income increases one uh, through the use of waste that they get, that they'll get by going to more houses or offices and also through the recyclables that they get that they'll get now uh, the thing is that men by worship introducing technologically advanced tools for waste collection has transformed has completely transformed the space which the women buy has completely transformed waste collection by entering into a space into which the women themselves would never probably have entered into and by this by changing the structure of waste collection the role of women has also changed and you know just you can understand in two different ways one is that there is a gender segregation of waste collection around picture so in case of these tempo walas in a lot of these cases we can see it is couples going around collecting waste so when that is happening while we were interviewing really when i conducted the interviews in such a way that both men and women were sitting together and we talked to them for one or two hours so what we saw was that most of the time even though both of them are engaged in waste collection the men if they are driving the tempos they'll always be engaged in the in, in the driving part of it the collection is still done by women so there is a very clear gender occupational segregation within waste collection even when couples are engaged in the occupation the second one is that uh, by the introduction of tempos as an alternative for pushcarts it is it is just men availing this opportunities these women have been in this profession for many many years and none of them are have you know even though they recognize that tempos are something which would get you a lot more income than pushcarts none of the women are entering into it so you know by introduction of tempos into picture the feature of the occupation is getting changed and also um, what we can see is that the introduction of motorized okay so the reason behind this these women entering the profession is purely because base picking required zero capital like you never really needed any money to enter into the profession but with tempos in the picture there is money coming in so uh, the conclusions of my study was that even though these men are entering into the into a completely female centric occupation they kind of transform the occupation they they kind of transform the occupation and with in this case this transformation was through introduction of a motorized transport thank you so much for such a beautiful and elaborate articulation sandra i learned so much just listening to you speak for the last few minutes and about something that's really talked about that's really researched so thank you so much for that and it's so fascinating to see that the entry of men in a relatively disorganized labor area which was a predominantly female centric has become completely reoriented reoriented and changed the structural dynamics of an entire activity and i also see this as a sort of double edged sword where the entry of men has made the occupation more gender fluid uh, providing more opportunities for income uh, means to earn income to a larger demographic but at the same time decreasing the number of women in the activity and it's also interesting to see how uh, stereotypically assigned gender roles come into play with an emphasis on strength uh, in terms of men doing more of the transportation work etc yeah so at this juncture i'd like to open up a few questions to all of you 
um, a common thread that I see in all of your work is that there's a tremendous emphasis on research and data collection. So one of the questions that has always stayed on my mind is how research as a practice can be mindful. And we often see how privilege holds the lens of research with a spotlight on the oppressed, almost in a voyeuristic sense. So how do you grapple with this in your everyday work and in your research as well? So you're uh, actually right. Uh, the researchers do come from a point of privilege. And see, I don't want to say that privilege is entirely bad or it's good. The thing is, what do you do with that privilege? What are you using that privilege for? So, see, I have to add here, advocacy is a huge part of any research. The purpose of research is policy recommendation. But because of the innate privilege that researchers tend to enjoy, they sometimes tend to impart knowledge from a very high cost. So, gender budgeting and recommendations for gender budgeting need to have a participatory approach. We need to ask women what they need the most and make allocations in the budget accordingly. We've come a long way. We're talking about breaking the glass ceiling, women to management television. If you go on the ground, you ask the urban poor women, all they want is water in the house or pipeline or clean the garbage. So the fight for women has a huge spectrum. And the intersectionality aspect is very important. Women have been oppressed. But Dalit women or women with disabilities, they are more oppressed. And an inclusive approach is very important. And unless we understand that, no, no matter how much of, uh, research you do, the moment you reach the field or attempt the primary service, you're just going to be loudly. Because at the end of the day, if you are coming to them with something that they want to do with them, they will tell you 10 things that they need already. And until and unless you Give them those 10 things that they need, they're not going to participate with you in whatever services you're attempting to provide for them. So along with the privilege comes, you know, a huge responsibility that we have to tap. So whenever you are doing any research, you come from a point of privilege, you come from a place of privilege. Um, if you are able to formulate a question and explore um, the nuances of that particular question and understand why certain things happen in a certain way, you have been in a place where you've had the right education, you've had access to information, and you've been able to articulate everything that you want to say and also abstract things that are common to someone else and quite difficult for a normal person, a common man to abstract. So you stem, it all stems from a place of privilege. But one thing that I've learned uh, with my last, uh, my your with uh, working in development has been uh, trying to the different way in which you approach uh, an individual, uh, be it a woman or a man. You often realize that you know you come from a place of bias, and for you, your research holds so much significance. But for them, your research ha holds no significance simply because they have other issues that take precedence, and whatever your findings are, to ensure that th those findings help them and reach them is, is a crucial step and also it's imperative to take a more, um, you need to empathize with them instead of sympathize with them, which is something that research often does not do, simply because um, a lot of researchers might just take something up 
in a developing economy simply because it's a developing economy and the results might seem a lot more interesting. So I don't think that's the case in most cases, but sometimes it does stem from that. And even when you advocate your findings, it's necessary to be subjective, understand what the situation is for them, and then approach them. I do not believe in blanket advocacy simply because I think each individual perceives information in a different manner. They understand research in a different manner. They might not even understand that you're doing research about them and that you're trying to find something to improve their lives. Because for them, what matters are those small issues which might seem, which might not be an issue for us, but for them, it means a lot. For instance, I once visited the field and I was shocked simply because I was there to do some research about gender based, um, um, you know, how decisions were made and the role of gender. Whereas when I reached the field, I realized that they did not care about the importance of gender at that point. For them, everything was neutral simply because they were trying to find water to drink. They were trying to find food to eat for the day. And my, the research that seemed would, that I thought would change their lives held no value. So I think it's a very nuanced way of approaching it. I do agree that you know, privilege does come in sometimes, but it's imperative to distinguish the privilege and try to understand their perspective more than anything else. Yeah, like both Apurva and Malvika said, there is a lot of privilege that comes from the fact that you are able to research about them in the sense that you're looking at people from a distance. So one way of being mindful uh, is to let the research questions come from the ground. So this is one way in which you can try to con counter the sort of positionality that you come that you have. Like otherwise, as a researcher, what happens most of the time is that it's easy to get into a track where you you know you go to the field with a certain set of very defined questions and you know by and you know you try to seek answers to them but in a certain way by doing this you're already getting biased you know you think this is what is or no do you, you think this is what is happening so when you go into the field with you know a clear set of uh, with a clear set of questions it you know it might end up not being relevant at all or it might not uh, end up not being the right approach to things um and also um i mean we all carry a certain set of notions when that when we get in the uh, when we get into the field, but at the same time we should be mindful enough to let the participants speak for themselves. Like we might think that okay, this is what is important for them, or this is what should be done. But you know, unless you let the participants speak for themselves, unless you try to get the research questions from the ground, your research might end up being not relevant to them. So and which is why we are all doing it. We want to help the people. So if you are going like if you from uh, the from the fact that you are privileged. From the fact that you are able to frame the questions, unless you're careful enough to not get biased from your own ideas of what these people need or what these people are going through, your research might end up being not at all relevant to them. And you know, a very easy way of illustrating this, especially in the case of pacemakers, is that, like I said, their trade union was formed in 1993 by two women, Purnima and uh, Lakshmi And you know, in early in the 80s and 90s, these these women thought of segregation of waste collection and the idea while this idea is currently in picture in the city it was way ahead of its time in the late 90s or in the late 80s and 90s purely because these 
face fitness didn't even have an identity for themselves they were they were highly stigmatized like you know they were always thought of people who are engaged in theft like in if in any community some sort of theft happens the police it was common practice for the police to gather on all the waste pickers and to question them so in their case their problem was not really about finding or getting an easy access to waste their primary issue in that situation was to get out of the stigma associated with their profession so while what purnima and uh, lakshminarayan thought of at that point was extremely relevant it was important to prioritize the needs of the people that you are uh, dealing with so that's one way of being mindful then another way of being uh, of not letting people another important thing is to not let people feel like you are here purely for your own personal interest like you know i've uh, uh, i've just start, i like i had experience of working on issues of development in the past few years and i've made the mistake of going to people and asking questions just because i want answers and that is very you know it's rude on my part and it's like you know i'm just making use of whatever information they have like i've i've made the mistake of going to people and asking them about their educational qualifications or how their kids are and imagine that happening to you so you know it's always i i know that i'm not going to make that mistake now but i did it so you know one of the things that i learned over the course of last few years is that you always need to be mindful to not let people think that i am here just because i need answers for my research so you know and for by that way there has to be some sort of an honesty in terms of your interactions with the people and one one way of letting that honesty come through is where you don't really pose your own set of questions like i mentioned earlier and you know let them emerge through broader conversations with these people and um another way of being mindful i would say is to understand that people work in very trying circumstances uh, for example uh, as a part of my course i had this opportunity as part of my dissertation and my course on human development i had the opportunity to go to the base fields in the city or uh, the base plants in the city and obviously these people are dealing with waste and there is some sort of smell associated with it but you can't really go to go in front of these people and then you know put a towel around your mouth it's it smells a lot it's, these people are making an income out of it so you need to be respectful of their occupation also just because you are privileged enough to not experience that does not give you any right to make them conscious about what of, of their circumstances those are some incredibly powerful insights ladies thank you very much for sharing empathy honesty mindfulness acknowledging one's privilege and being open to uh, making mistakes i think these are extremely valuable ideas that um, any of our listeners would take home feeling very enriched about the process uh, so just sort of moving over to the last question um, and and i'd love for all of you to weigh in on this uh, as women in this space as women who are dealing with um, many different dimensions of your personal and your professional lives what have some of your key challenges been and how have you responded or how are you responding to these challenges uh, so when it comes to gender particularly new uh, challenges that are faced here in the country again going back to the dynamic issue of the women and the sexual orientation they automatically assume that you are belong here either you're too young or uh, too stupid too modern or just asking questions people do not want to answer and especially as a woman they look down at you even more so access 
researchers, especially those that have primary research, we challenge the existing administrative structure, we challenge the current functioning of the system, and we do not help it. We'll always have that to deal with, you know, the challenge of extracting information from the authorities. Again, it's not with all the performance, but every once in a while we'll bound those resources. If that's pertinent to you, a woman, I can't be assured, but yet, so whenever you enter the office, you can see the change in the atmosphere of the room. You can just, you know, that someone is instantly detected that there's someone on the table who does not belong. And that automatically creates a kind of a invisible wall between you and the colleagues when you are trying to extract information that does create a barrier. I think uh, when you're visiting the pool, I've always noticed that I kind of change my attire, I change the way I approach people simply because for me, even though I'm trying to get my research done, I'm trying to understand why certain things are the way they are, it's also important to place some emphasis on my safety, not just some, a lot of emphasis on my safety. Um, you visit a lot of rural areas where you know, um, a lot of people are not really used to women being on their own, approaching people randomly and sporadically and asking them questions or trying to understand things and striking up conversations with them at a length. Um, so I think there are a lot of measures that you take. And I've also noticed something that a lot of women researchers do, which is that, you know, the way you start talking itself is very different kind of take a louder tone or you try to ensure that the other person hears you because a lot you do notice this a lot that people often don't take you seriously like Apurva said um, I feel that most of them think that women might not know what they're talking about you do still have that that ingrained in their system they do have these notions about women and um, for you it's essential to bridge that gap and ensure that they do take you seriously. And I think I've um, adopted a lot of measures on that front. And I still continue to do that. And I'm certain that a lot of women who are in development will take all of these measures, be it for their safety, be it for being taken seriously, be it for also ensuring that people feel comfortable with them. Because there is this perception that men cannot talk to women in many areas. And it's it's, it's essential for a woman to make sure that all of this is happening at the same time. And um, that, that's been my experience so far. Yeah, um, in my, uh, I agree with what Malvika and Apurva are saying. And while I was doing my dissertation or my other research projects, I would say the challenges or the benefits came from the intersectionality of me being a woman as well as a student. So for a student, what often happens is that there are you know, two ways of looking at it. One way is that the pe people would be willing to give you more in information because, uh, purely because you are using it, you're going to use it only for academic purposes. But the downside of it is that, you know, there's, uh, there's always a chance of brushing you off or you can, they can just say whatever they want and they know that you are not in the, you know, you're not in the field, so you don't really know what is happening. So even if they give only limited information, you don't really, really have the means to probe further. Further, what I've noticed, uh, it, this is not a personal challenge that I face, but what I've uh, noticed for, through the course of my researches is that the 
the role of women in the labor market for like to give an um, to give an example as a part of my dissertation uh, as i mentioned uh, earlier i used to interview couples um, and in one case i went to their house uh, of you know the man used a tempo to collect waste and the women used, and the and, and the wife she used to go around collecting waste using a push cart so me my sir and, and and another friend of mine was there and then we were talking to them we were interviewing both of them so while we were there it was the lady of the house who was she cooked uh, she made tea for us and she she was done with that she started making rotis so this you know this gendered notion of labor like she is doing the same like the similar kind of work that the man is doing but even after coming home she's again engaged in some other sort of work that is one thing and another thing is that um as i mentioned earlier i worked on uh, no i not just on waste i like even when i was doing my work on water we always go to a lot of these authorities and on friend a lot of these organizations are completely gender neutral but Uh, as a, a personal experience is that most of the people on higher positions or the authorities are mostly men and so uh, while we say that yeah okay there are equal opportunities for both men and women we all it almost ends up being that on the higher positions it might it's you know this is what i have seen i've always encountered men in higher authorities and unless i don't think i've ever interviewed or i've ever met a woman who was in a very high authority position so that's another thing that i've observed thank you so much ladies for the for those insightful observations and all of the learning that you've gathered through your work so far uh it's it's interesting to note that we've actually traversed a whole uh trajectory if you will through your uh, responses through the snapshots of the work that you've offered us uh starting right from the spectrum of areas that you cover and the work that you do uh with um, each of your areas of specialization at Akuba for gender budgeting malvikadi with behavioral economics and sandra looking at the defeminization of the waste pickup profession in pune and from there to sort of talk about your individual experiences around dealing with research and the difficult questions of grappling with um, how we actually shine the spotlight on a community while being the privileged ones holding that spotlight um, and moving right down to your own personal challenges as women in this space uh, it's been very very insightful conversation and really grateful to have had this opportunity to learn from you and i think i speak for our uh, listeners when i say this um, tremendously insightful and extremely uh, powerful answers thank you ladies so much for not only taking the time out of your busy schedules to do this podcast but also for agreeing to feature on the first panel that we've been lucky to um, have on feminifesto AP and I are extremely grateful uh, to the three of you, and we're definitely taking home many insights and questions to think about.